Welcome to Change My Relationship podcast. This is your host, Carla Downing. Today, I'm going to share with you an interview that was done of me by Reverend Dan Holmes and Dr. Stephanie Holmes on their Neurodiverse Christian Couples podcast. The title was Help for Women in Complex Marriages. We talked primarily about raising children in a complex marriage. The principles and the tools that we talked about are applicable for neurodiverse marriages, but also any marriage in which there's dysfunctional dynamics that are affecting the children. Hello, and welcome back to Neurodiverse Christian Couples Podcast. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Dan. And today we have a guest with us, Carla Downing of Change My Relationships, Practical Biblical Solutions. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist who's been in a difficult relationship and combines her professional and her personal experience. While not AS trained, she is AS aware, which is why we want to have her on and talk about her principles and we'll weave in the nuances of neurodiversity. Um, But she has had topics of autism on her podcast. I looked it up today on Change My Relationship. There was one specifically, I'm an Asperger husband. Um, I was a covert emotional abuser. Um, I got halfway through my journey through double abuse where the person was talking about surviving the relationship plus those who didn't believe her and her faith community. That one's a great one. And then living with OCD. OCD is usually a crossover sometimes with autism and then scriptural truths for women and difficult marriages. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today, Carla. Oh, I'm very excited. Well, what we want to do is go over your life-saving principles. So will you kind of do an introduction to everyone on the life-saving principles that goes with your practical biblical solutions, and then we'll dive into some of those. Okay. So the first thing I always do is start off with scriptural foundations. And for Christians in difficult relationships, that literally means attacking the common misconceptions and correcting them because Christians hold uh, some very common misconceptions about what the Bible says about relationships, and they cause them to do things that are not healthy in their relationships. So the next thing that we do is we go through, you know, kind of understanding what are you dealing with? What is a difficult relationship? What is a dysfunctional relationship? What is, in your case, it would be, you know, what is a neurodiverse relationship? What are the characteristics of that that you're going to be dealing with? You have to know what the problem is in order to deal correctly with the problem. Then I do change yourself, not him, or change yourself, not her, or not them, taking the focus off of trying to force the other person to change, getting rid of that wasted energy that says, I don't like this, I don't want it to be this way, I want it to be different, I'm gonna try to force it to be different, can literally become an obsession, it can cause you to not live your own life, not take care of yourself, can cause you to do additional damage in the relationship. Then detaching with love. Detaching with love, I tell people, if I can teach you this, I'm going to set you free. It literally tells people and reminds them, even if it's a marriage, you are a separate individual with separate feelings, separate thoughts, separate beliefs, separate perceptions, separate choices. You've got to own those, focus on those, learn to not react, but act in your relationship, recognize that you're, that the other person is choosing and doing what that person is choosing to do. And you've got to decide what is my response going to be? 
It's also not enabling in cases where enabling is an issue in the relationship. Taking care of yourself, nurturing yourself is basic self-care skills that most people do not do when they're in a difficult relationship because they let go of that and they spend so much energy trying to change the other person and fix the problems and make sure everything's okay. And then facing your fears. I know for years, my own situation, I knew boundaries, I got boundaries, I would do boundaries, and then I'd pull back. And I'm like, what is that? When I wrote the book, I'm like, that's fear. Fear is what causes us to not do what we know we need to do. And there are a lot of fears in difficult, dysfunctional relationships. Then speaking the truth in love, I need to teach people to either speak, find their voice, or to speak in a way that is effective and not ineffective in a difficult relationship. And there's many parts to that. And then of course, setting boundaries, which comes at the end. That's the only one that you must do after you've done the other principles. You cannot set boundaries if you have not done the other things. And uh, then it's, I have a chapter in the book for women in difficult marriages on helping your children, prioritizing your children. How do you deal with children in that dysfunctional marriage? Um, that's a real painful area. It's um, a hard area and needs to be addressed. And then the last one is about entering God's rest. And that's really about acceptance, grieving the losses, grieving the disappointment, grieving the loss of dreams, acceptance, living one day at a time, and just doing the best you can and trusting, trusting God to redeem it all. Wow, you did that so well, so succinctly and hit all 10 really quick. <laughs> I've done it a few times. That was great. Yeah, you might you might have gone through this list a few times. <laughs> yeah. Dan and I were discussing and kind of looking over the list. Dan um, had a one that he really wanted to go into a deep dive on. So I'll let him kind of ask the question because I think um, this one's super important. So I'd love to hear your insight on it. Okay. So this question comes largely from make your children a priority, but it's a little bit of a deviation off of the theme you've got there. What do you suggest or recommend or practice when it's the wife communicating to the children about the father's behavior? So it's a, you know, it's kind of that he might do this. I'm going to do this because I know it's better. Think about discipline. He might, you know, give you a year long uh, suspension, right? You can't do that. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help anybody if they're five. But mom says, that's not going to work. Okay. You don't get dessert tonight instead. Eventually the child is going to realize there is a very big difference between the way dad does things and the way mom does things. And I'm using dad and mom as the example, not because it's the rule. Uh, but that communication, how does the, how does the person communicate that difference and why is there such a disparity discrepancy between the way the two of them react well first of all we have and that's you you, you gave me the hardest question of all right out of the box so <laughs> i'll try not to take the whole program answering that question so first of all we've got differences between men and women in any marriage in disciplining and there are differences usually in couples just because of their gender their background their beliefs their experience, their own, you know, ways that they react, what they believe about discipline. And, and, you know, hopefully people have talked about that, but in reality, in the implementation, it will often come off very differently. So what is very hard in that situation is to protect the children and not allow the children to be hurt by 
over-disciplining, but also you've got to recognize there's a couple other factors. We want to try not to argue in front of the children, to discuss the discipline in front of the children. Uh, I recommend <clears throat> recommending cases where the children, you, you have to do at some level truth with children, which is, you know, if, if we're dealing with somebody who's depressed or somebody who's drinking, kids kind of get that there's an issue. So I don't always recommend using a label for what the problem is, but you know, maybe the kids need to be validated. They need to be, um, they need to be shown modeled how to deal with things. So I think basically one, you try to talk to your spouse about the discipline differences, see if you can get an agreement on some basic things, uh, sometimes writing those basic house rules on the refrigerator that you can refer back to that you've already agreed to. So if we're talking about um, a neurodiverse couple where you've got maybe somebody who's very you know rigidly applying that overreaction of discipline, if you've had a discussion, if you've gone to some basic rules, you might be able to pull the person away, have a conversation about, okay, this is one of those times when that's like a, you know, over disciplining. Can we come back together and, and agree with this? Um, if not, if it's actually something like a year suspension, you are, you know, um, you would not want to do that to a child. That would be damaging to a child. So it depends on at what level you can go in and correct it. I, I have to tell you, from my own personal situation, my husband often did that. He's not neurodiverse, but he was very reactive and very uh, kind of not, it wasn't always the same. If he was in a bad mood or, you know, he might like jump in and do something. I enforced these crazy disciplines. He often forgot about them. What the heck? So I learned sometimes if that's said and he's not going to, follow through on it, then I don't have to. So I might be able to say, you know what, I'm just going to, you're just not going to get diverse dessert tonight and not even deal with potentially that the, the person has said in a reaction, a year's discipline. But if it's really going to be reinforced, then that's where you might have to, at some point, step in and say, I'm sorry, I can't agree to that. Uh, one of the things that I would do is I'd say, I'm sorry, I can't agree with taking a teenager's car away when I'm the one that's going to have to go drive her everywhere. So that one's not going to work. So there's a lot of different ways. At times, you can basically say to the kids, sometimes, sometimes mommy or sometimes daddy um, overreacts or um, says something that is really big, but he or she hasn't had time to really think about it. And so we'll deal with that later. There's a lot of ways you can do that, that basically protect the child. What you don't want to do is say, you don't have to listen to him or her. Let's say you don't have to listen to dad. You don't have to do what dad says. Ignore what dad says. You would never want to do that because it would undermine the position of the kid's respect for the father. And it would put a breach in that relationship. So as much as possible, you always want to basically help your children respect that parent help your children look for the good in that parent, but there may be some things that do have to be addressed. And sometimes you might come up with a label for it, but then there's also all of the other principles I teach. Teach your children how to detach, teach your children how not to take things personal, teach your children how to basically take care of themselves and let things go and understand, you know, kind of let things calm down and see, you know, how, th how things will work out. We'll deal with that later. We'll talk about that later, that we'll, we'll resolve that kind of thing and be calm.
So in the calmness. Perhaps a follow-up to that, then what if the issue isn't so much discipline? What if um, the kids start noticing integrity issues? And now the now the other spouse is in a balancing position of acknowledging a character flaw while not completely disparaging the entire person. Daddy makes promises. He doesn't follow through. We're going to do this Saturday or all of us have to do this, but daddy doesn't have to do it. How do you navigate through that? You've got to address it. You've got to be honest with your kids. I mean, what the worst thing you want to do, and this is what typically happens, is people, one, don't want to acknowledge the pain with their children or the reality. So they try to cover it up. Oh, it's no big deal. Or they lie. Oh, dad's just busy or dad's got other things to do or dad doesn't feel well today. And the kids aren't stupid. They know, nope, this is not what's going on. I heard you and daddy are kind of talking about this or I can tell dad's just fine. Uh, So you don't want to lie. You want to basically say um, dad's not going. Why? Dad sometimes chooses not to go. I know that hurts. I I know I can tell you're disappointed. I can tell that that upsets you. Um, I'm sorry. And then just say, but let's go and let's have a really good game. And maybe we'll go and we'll do ice cream afterwards. And when we get home, we'll tell dad about the game. Because sometimes, I mean, most of the women I work with, they, of course, want their child to have a good relationship with their father, even if in this case, let's say it's the father who has a diagnosis or you said an addiction, alcoholism, in our case, neurodiversity. And so they they want to kind of prop up and keep filling in the gaps, um, not knowing how, uh, because there's that line, like you said, you don't want to undermine and disrespect the position of the other parent, but yet there are these things that are happening that are not okay. And then what's the message you're sending on the other side if dad continues to make promises and says we're going to do things and makes uh, false agreements and then doesn't follow through, but yet I'm expecting you, my child, to do that. And there's going to be a consequence if you don't do that. Right. And it's that's a really tough road to go down. And the as best as possible, try to figure out if there's a way for the child to even say, dad, I don't like it when you don't come or dad, I wish you could go see if you can get any type of communication that's possible in that area to where the child has a voice in that, but at least let the child have a voice with the mom in that case. And you can't, you just cannot lie. You cannot smooth over. You can't fix all those hurts. Uh, one of the things that you might, if that, let's say it's a pattern that dad typically doesn't go. And if, and if dad says, Oh, okay, I'm going to go. You might, you know, the kid might say, yeah, right. And you might say, yeah, a lot of times dad doesn't go when he says that, huh? Dad says things he doesn't, he doesn't do. Dad sometimes says stuff and you don't say, oh, dad means it. Dad really wants to go. You say, yeah, dad, a lot of times dad says he's going to go, but we know that he usually doesn't go. It's matter of fact. And then it's letting your children have those feelings, letting your children talk about the validating those feelings again showing your child what about when daddy doesn't go with mom to an event like dad was supposed to go does mom flip out does she go nuts does she get super upset does she yell at dad does she pout around the house does she slam doors or does she take it matter of fact and say you know 
uh, I'm disappointed that you're not going to go with me, but um, I'm going to go anyway. I'll see you around nine. See, so mom just modeled. How do I deal with dad not going when dad makes a promise? That can be done in any of those areas. Obviously, if it is abusive, obviously, if it literally is damaging the children, you have to agree with it. Kids come first. The other thing that you can think about in this situation is not purposefully undermining relationship with dad. But if you know that this is dad's pattern and dad's not going to do certain things or dad's going to overreact maybe in certain ways, maybe you don't ask dad to be the one who gets kids ready for school in the morning or puts them to bed at night. Maybe you have to adjust your life and your schedule to do those things that tend to cause problems with the kids that end up hurting the kids because they're difficult for your spouse to do, then you maybe have to pick up in those areas and recognize this is one of the things that I need to do to adapt to being in a neurodiverse marriage. So one of the things that can be common in a neurodiverse marriage might be um, the neurodiverse spouse, which could be male or female, but um, maybe isn't aware of what should be happening developmentally, like what's yeah. developmentally appropriate for a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old, or sometimes in neurodiversity, that parent might want everything to be fair. So treating the five and eight-year-old, you know, the same, but then when there's sensory stuff, this one, this is actually a situation I'm trying to help a family navigate because of dad's sensory issues. He wants a rule that no one's allowed to make noise. And that if dad is in a certain room, no child allowed to be there. He has a decibel meter, no decibels allow above this. And if you do, there will be a consequence for that. And if mom tries to step in and say, that's not developmentally appropriate, you're dis dishonoring me. You're choosing the children over me. You're disrespecting me. You're not being submissive. You're supposed to back me up. Mm -hmm. So that in our Christian circles adds that extra layer. You're not backing me up. You're not being submissive, but yet the, whichever path, spouse does not have a diagnosis or is not neurodiverse, who's neurotypical, help that person navigate what yeah. to do when there's this kind of situation that's not going away because right. it's not treated. Um, it's not cured. It's a neurological issue. That sensory stuff could happen all the time. And that's not reasonable to expect children not to make noise in the house. Exactly. So I think that's one of those things, again, where you have to be honest with the kids. Daddy has a really sensitive brain here, five-year-old daddy's ears are very sensitive. You know how, when somebody like you can show them, you know, puts your fingers and scratches something, or maybe bangs a bag, everything sounds like that to daddy. So it isn't that daddy doesn't want you around. It's that it literally can hurt daddy. Now you're not responsible for that. You don't hurt daddy. Daddy has to figure out how he is going to figure out how to make himself feel better. And we're going to try to help him as much as we can. So you do have to have some boundaries with a spouse in any situation like that. And um, that could be a narcissistic parent and, or anybody who's using scripture rigidly. One of the things that I teach women is that's one submission is a choice Two, uh, you submit when it's healthy, when it's the right thing to do, when it's pleasing God. Now, respecting your husband is understanding who he is and supporting him as much as possible and speaking truth in a very kind way. But it is not it's not blanket submission. It is not putting your husband over your children when it is hurting your children in 
a neurodiverse marriage or any marriage, there has to be a certain amount of here's my boundaries. So basically, if possible, I would say try to find a room where dad can have his quiet room. And when dad's in there, we let dad be quiet. I don't know if that's an extra bedroom, if it's the family room instead of the living room, if it's converting the garage. And maybe not all people can do that, but there's got to be like a quiet room. Maybe it's a bedroom, putting stuff in the bedroom that dad, the master bedroom where dad can be in there. When dad's in there, that's his quiet room. Dad has to take some responsibility for being in the quiet room if he's really in a really sensitive place or, and dad has to be able to say that, that, sorry, that hurt my ears kind of thing or ouch, that hurt. But I wouldn't allow consequences for that. I would just say bottom line boundary, no consequences. And here's where at some point you have to stake out your issue. This is the line that I can't let you cross for hurting my children. This is the one that is too much. This is the, we've got to have an agreement here that we're working together. We're staying together, but you've got to accept that there's certain things with your, you know, uh, with the Asperger's that you're basically not you're going to take responsibility for those. Those can't, the kids can't be disciplined. So again, a chart that has basic age uh, expectations or changes, if there's something available for that, if not make it, it would be amazing to just say, here's a very, because, you know, when we talk about neurodiverse, one thing I love about it, that after I did the interview of um, the man Cooper that had his, uh, his neurodiverse experience, he was talking about his marriage. I said, oh my gosh, this is a benefit. He literally, when he understood from his therapist that he had to have certain quiet time after work before interacting, or he would be too reactive and sensitive, he does it every day. I'm like, what person does that every day? What, what, what person says, I've got to calm down before I have a conversation and then does it every single day? I'm like, yay, that is an amazing benefit. I wish everyone that I dealt with, including myself, could do what I should do in a difficult, just, just to own my own stuff every single time. So maybe it is, you know, basically having them look at that. This is five-year-old, this is 10-year-old. These are differences kind of thing. Um, but I would not allow a consequence for doing that. And um, back to submission, favorite Bible story about this, okay? Back in the Old Testament, David has been helping and a name, I believe it's Nabal's, Nabal's sheep, right? I love this. And he's been taking care of him and he's been protecting his men. And then David's gone, you know what? I need help from you right now. And Nabal, whose name means fool, literally, basically said, oh, no, I'm not helping you. And a servant came to Abigail, his wife, and said, uh, this guy, fool, just told David, I'm not giving you food. I'm not giving you anything. I'm not helping your men. And David's going to come they basically wipe us all out. It's going to kill us. Now, did Abigail go, oh my gosh, I need to submit to this man. I need to respect him or God's not going to, you know, bless me. She went, get me the food, get me the sheep, get me this, get me horse, come with me. Let's get out of here now. She goes to David. She apologizes, gives him all the food and says, my husband is a fool. Please don't listen to him. Take this from me. So what happens? God kills Nabal. Abigail marries David. Really? 
<laughs> does that show us scripturally that no matter what somebody your husband asked you to do, you have to do it? No, she stepped up because she saw that his decision was going to hurt her family. And she said, no, and God blessed that. And so that at times we have to take into consideration. And this is a difficult thing to navigate in every situation, but as much as possible, try to figure out where can I decide, okay, in this case, no consequences for noise. But you can say to your child, oh, you know that, that remember dad sensitive. So maybe I think you need to take your drums outside or in your bedroom. So that leads us, I, I think that's a nice lead in to the, to the next topic, uh, the next uh, one of these, detach with love. So in that idea, let's, let's take this, keep that same example. You've got now a wife that probably is continuing to grieve over what she's having to deal with daily. Mm -hmm. She's probably also internally at least struggling with the tension of all of the things that are coming on. There's anger, there's uh, blame. She's probably, perhaps maybe there's some verbal abuse in that. And there is a lot going on. Yeah. What does detach with love practically look like? If you was to, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night, that's got to go somewhere. What yeah. does detach with love practically look like? Oh, okay. So, well, remember I say, if you can detach with love, I can set you free. And what I mean by that is I'll give you, I'll give you just, let's say an example, we could take the same one, uh, husband's doing this instead of literally, you look at your husband, he's in a bad mood, he looks down, his face looks upset. Do you take that on and say, I need to fix that. I need to make him feel better. I need to change his feelings about me because he's not happy that I wouldn't follow up with disciplining the child because the child just made noise. And I just instead went in and I just took the child and moved the child to another room and said, remember noise father's daddy, but let's, let's go read a book over here. Um, is he's mad at me about that? Am I going to go try to fix it, change it? Am I going to lose sleep over it? Am I going to worry about it? Or am I just going to say, you know, he's going to have to deal with that. I know I did what's right. I'm going to let that go. So mom's going to do what she would normally do. She's going to take the kids. She's going to make do something to occupy the kids. She's going to go on with her night routine. She's going to do everything she normally does. She's not going to get into a big argument with him, which is going to rock the house even further. And she's going to put the child to bed and she's going to be in a pleasant mood. She's not going to be irritable with the child because she's irritated at him. And it's, it's literally, it basically means that you continue being who you are, feel your own feelings. You don't have to take on blame from him. You can say, if he wants to blame me, that's his deal. I'm going to let him figure that out. Now, later, if, if there's a time where it works and you can have a conversation, you can say, you know, I, I'm not responsible for what our children do or whatever it is that you need to talk about, but it's detaching from blame. It's like putting up a shield. You want to blame me? I don't feel responsible. I can check myself. Am I responsible for that? No. That blame arrow hits the shield, boom, drops to the ground. I'm, it doesn't pierce my heart, okay, that whatever other accusation, the mean words, the raised voice, all of that, don't have to take that on, not mine, not going to engage with it, not going to change my reaction for the rest of the night, not going to go to bed and not be able to sleep. Accusations, you can either ignore them, you can sometimes you can say, 
that's not true. And then end the conversation. Or sometimes you can talk about it later. Sometimes you don't even need to, because sometimes it's just in the moment. It's somebody reacting. It's somebody upset. And you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to fix it. They're in uh, Al-Anon, we're talking about alcoholics. They have the th this thing called the three C's. I love it. Works for detachment. I didn't cause it. I can't control it. And I can't cure it. I can't, I didn't cause this husband to be mad. I didn't cause him to react this way. I didn't cause him to blame me. I didn't do anything. I can't control his feelings and his thoughts and his opinions. And I don't have to go fix them. And so basically it's just the freedom. I'm going to live my own life now. It does not mean I don't care. It does not mean I'm not engaging in my marriage. It doesn't mean I'm emotionally divorced. It means I'm going to engage when it is important. I'm going to talk about things when I have to, but I'm going to let a lot of things go. And I'm not, I'm going to treat, here's another thing, detaching with love means that you treat the person with kindness and courtesy. I don't care if you're mad, whatever it is, if you're upset, you still react with kindness and courtesy. You just say, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to put the kids to bed now, or, you know what, we'll, we'll talk about this later. I'm going to let you, you know, just you continue to watch TV. It's no problem. I'll take care of things tonight, or I'll, I'll go do the dishes. I'll handle this. And you just, you do it with kindness. You do it with grace, courtesy. And no matter what the underneath feelings are, it decreases the fighting, the arguing, the, all of those things that take your energy, ruin the ambiance and the, the atmosphere in the home and hurt the children. But doesn't mean, remember, there's all the principles. So when you're detaching, it doesn't mean that at some point there isn't a time to speak truth or a time to set boundaries. It just means with detaching with love, you're not all integrated, mixed up, enmeshed with every single mood, feeling, thought, statement that your spouse makes. So that kind of being rocked by every wind yes. of, yeah. the, of the mood, this sensory... Yeah overwhelmment outburst, this snarky mood, this something yep. didn't happen. And now a spouse is off kilter. I, you're saying that detachment is, this isn't about me. I'm going to step yep. back and we're going to move through, but that does cause hurt. So yep. I, I see that how that definitely comes into, you can't change your spouse. You're only responsible for you. But what about that hurt? Because even if I tell myself, he doesn't mean that he's having an autistic meltdown or um, things will be better later. The things that were said really hurt me. Okay. And so when, when would you, um, help the person navigate? Okay. That was said, and that's not okay. I need to detach with love, but there's some things I'm not going to let you call me. There's some things you're mm -hmm. not going to be allowed to say to the children or to me, mm -hmm. and I'm yep. going to call you on it every time. Yep. You then those that. are the things that you decide beforehand. Again, you got to think through this and not just because you're in a you know, neurodiverse marriage, all kinds of difficult marriages have to have to think through this. You think through what are the things that I'm not going to accept, I'm not going to accept swearing. I'm not going to accept name calling. I'm not going to accept abuse of the kids, no hitting of the kids. I'm not going to, um, you know, whatever that is. So again, back to there would be a time and it may not be in that moment. It may be because in that moment it may be too escalating. You're not going to take somebody who is in a meltdown and try to talk sense to somebody in a meltdown. It's not going to happen. You're only going to melt up with that or melt down with that person. And so you, it may not be then, but if that's one of those things, or if you have, if you've already said, if this, this, and this happens, I will call you out. Then you say, 
calmly, as calmly as possible. Um, do not call me that. Do not say that to me. That is not okay. And the same thing with the kids. Do not call the kids those names. And then you take the kids out of the room. You don't take, you don't leave the kids there for him to continue melting down in front of the kids. The kids need to hear you say, that's not okay. And then if it continues over and over and over again, and it's a big problem, then you have decisions to make. Do you need to say therapy is required in order for us to live together in the same house? Uh, you, there are certain things that we have to come to an agreement on. Uh, maybe one of those agreements is when you do cross that line again, again, back to the book, because, you know, neurodiverse, it's having things written out and having them specific can be helpful. You know, this is what's going to happen when the, when I do this. So same thing with yourself. There's certain things you don't tolerate if it's physical abuse or it's really bad. You can literally leave the house for that night. That might be the consequence. The next time that happens, I'm going to take the kids and we're going to go for the night or for the weekend or for a couple of days, um, or I'm going to ask you to go. So it depends on the level because we're talking about a big, you know, pool of what those particular things can be, but there is a place for that. Those are boundaries. And those are things that, again, uh, for many years in, in my marriage, uh, the first part of the marriage, when I had all of the abusive stuff going on, I believed that as a Christian wife, I had to put my husband over my children. That means that I did not step in. I did step in, but I stepped in more with ineffective things, which was explaining, arguing, trying to change. And with my third daughter, which had a vast age difference between, it was more like, no. And then I would take her out and I would say, but then I would remind her too, that she has choices of things that she can do that can escalate or calm things down. And these are the things that you can see that, you know, will escalate. But yeah, there are definitely things that are no go. And those are boundaries and boundaries are what I will or will not do. So I will not continue a conversation if you are screaming at me. I will not continue a conversation in which you are calling me names or swearing at me. I will not allow you to scream at one of the children. I will not allow you to hit the children. I will not allow you to overpunish in a way that discourages our children and exacerbates them back in Ephesians 6, 1, right? I will not allow you to discipline where you provoke. So that's what you do. It, they all, they're all like all the principles are things that you can pick up and pull out at any time, depending on the situation that you have, that you have to deal with. There's a proper place for sometimes it's just speaking the truth. I'm concerned about this. This is not okay. This is um, hurtful. You know, what do you do with that hurt? Um, hurt is a feeling that you have. It's you with detachment. You don't want to stuff the emotions ever. You always want to feel them. You always want to process them. You want to label them, but then you get to decide what to do with them. I can take hurt and I can be resentful and I can put another check mark on the board or on the paper. Whoop, he did it again. He did it again. That's 510 times that he's melt down or called me those names or done that. I can do that. Or I can say, ouch, that hurt. I can say that. That's sometimes good. Oh, that hurt. Um, that was hurtful. That was painful. Um, but again, I can take hurt to and retaliate. That's not scriptural. It says that we're to love our enemies, bless those that curse us, bless those that hurt us. So it's the way you handle with it. So again, uh, one of the, the things is I say, don't take personalities personal. Is this the way the person is, or is the person doing this to me because of their relationship to me? Uh, no, in this case, that would be part of the neurodiversity. 
So I can say, this is part of the neurodiversity. I need to not take that personal as much as possible. I can't speak truth. That hurts when you say that. I can say it in that moment, that hurt, and then walk away. But if I'm going to be in a situation where I'm tallying up the marks of how many times that happens, that's probably not going to work. I'm going to try to sum up perhaps what I think I've heard into a statement that's in I hope is encouraging is that everything you're saying is a model to how the children should grow up to be a healthy parent. There is now a new model of healthy in the step that in, in your, in your 10 steps, when faced with adversity of near any kind, mm-hmm. here is a model of health. Is that, is that a, how would you agree with that? Um, yeah, a healthy, I would say, model of a healthy way to handle dysfunction in the marriage that affects the children. Now, my book, we've talked and focused mostly on the children and how you do this, because that is a very complex, I agree with you, thing. The book is not just for people, and my ministry is not just for people with in difficult relationships where children are affected. It's for anyone in any difficult marriage in any effect, not, and not just marriage relationship, could be adult, child, parent, sibling, that, you know, it, does, it doesn't matter, anything, even an ex-spouse. Um, but yes, when you're talking about, these are things that healthy people would do in a difficult marriage, no matter what the problem is, there is a line where you would say, this is too much, and the children are too affected. And when you see that that is starting to happen, then you have to make a choice. And it might be, we need to separate for a while. And we need to have, I just literally had a woman who did her testimony in my class Monday of this week. And she has been separated for two years for the third time in her marriage because the boundaries of how he was flipping out and affecting the children and the anger toward the children was not working and they've tried to get back together multiple times and it still happens and she's drawn a line and said i love you i'm going to stay married to you but we can't live together when you can't figure out what's going on with your emotions and you can't process them and handle them in a way that's not damaging so they see each other every day she lives with her parents with her three kids then this is huge i really like admire her strength with this and she's told them these are the things that have to change they're still in they're in therapy together as a family uh, with her but she's got clear boundaries there will be no emotional outburst if that happens when you are you know over here you must leave and he's tolerating that and and working with it and she's doing that to protect herself and her children. And I think that that is a very, very hard call to make. Um, She worked a lot with him before getting to that point, trying to get it corrected. But uh, sometimes, you know, you do get to that point where you have to make a little more drastic step. This is not easy. We're talking about having a lot of discernment, a lot of wisdom, Um, underneath all this is all my other principles, knowing how to take care of yourself. If you're not doing this yourself, you cannot model this for your children. You've got to know how to take care of yourself. You've got to know how to speak the truth. You've got to know how to control your own emotions. You got, you have to face your fears. You have to understand setting boundaries. You've got to understand all the detachment, you know, stopping, trying to change him, all this futile engagement of things. And you've got to, you've got to 
you know, you got to learn what am I dealing with? What is, what's my expectation? How can I respond to this in the most healthy way? Um, there's a lot of, of good things about staying together and learning how to navigate these things. Broken homes are hard on children, no matter what, but you've got to, you've got to always be honest about what's going on and, and, you know, what are your options? You got to be creative too, with, with inviting the, your neurodiverse spouse into participating in solving the problem, keeping it in the problem to solve. How do we solve this problem in our house? And that's a very non-emotional approach to you're screaming, you're melting down, you're abusing the kids. And that's not the best way to approach this. Does, does that make sense? Yes. What I'd love for us to kind of end on is, um, specifically in neurodiversity, but neurodiversity is not the only complex marriage. It could be addiction. It could be a mental health issue, um, especially like living with someone who's really OCD um, is very complex um, situation, but um, especially in, so in our terms of neurodiversity, you mentioned something that sometimes you have to separate. And so would you talk to um, counselors, biblical counselors, ministers who sometimes over they push, you have to stay together. You have to stay in the same house. Um, this isn't an affair. So it's not um, a biblical reason for divorce, for better, or for worse, for sickness and in health. Um, when, when a couple is willing to separate, live in separate places, they're coming up with creative measures while still keeping the sexual covenant, of, of course, um, of, you know, no one outside of the marriage, you know, so we're not talking about being a swinger or open marriage or something like crazy, but we are talking about that. It might be, um, daddy's only home on weekends, or we live in two different places, or we're living with parents and we're, there's a lot of different ways you have to be creative in complex situations. And sometimes ministers and counselors don't understand that. And they want to push towards a traditional model. Would you talk a little bit about that? Well, and there is any number of things they can do. And that actually caused problems in the church uh, where you take scripture and you apply it literally and rigidly. And I'm going to start off by saying Jesus condemned the Pharisees for doing that. When the Pharisees said to him, oh, whoa, 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 your disciples, they're picking grain on the Sabbath. And what are you doing healing that man on the Sabbath? Jesus said, I, I'm greater than the Sabbath. I'm here. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus clearly demonstrated concern and care for people first, not rigid law. As far as beliefs about what the, when, the, we're not even talking about divorce here. We're talking about separation. I believe it's first Corinthians seven, where it talks about couples can separate. And if they do separate, to just stay married or not marry anybody else, but that we're called to live in peace. And the Bible, one, one thing that I teach is that scripture balances scripture. What we tend to do when we legalistically apply scripture in a way that it hurts people, desperately hurts people. I'm going to tell you that almost every person that I've talked to that has gone through things like this, abuse, difficult marriage, figuring this out, will look me in the eye and say, I was wounded and hurt by the church, people in the church, ministers, pastors, ministry leaders, way more than anyone outside the church. And I know many people that don't even go to church anymore because of that. And it's just a tragedy. Um, so basically, you've got to apply the whole Bible. You can't just say, well, the principle that applies to you in this situation is that you have to stay in the same house no matter what. No, 
Look at all the rest of the scriptures that call in, in Romans 12, it tells us in whatever you can do as much as is possible with you, do whatever you can to keep the peace. But then there are times to separate. There are times to step back. There are times to speak the truth in love. There are times to basically say no because of this consequence. Talk about consequences. You, you reap what you sow. You make this choice. This happens with this. We're working. You have a couple who's literally working to bring all of the things listed scripturally, peace, love, joy, self-control into their marriage to fix their marriage and they're willing to take the step to step back so they can they can individually learn and practice these things and then come together and they have a plan this is something that's working toward peace to say that that's not an option is is rigid it's rigid legalism i do not believe that god cares wants us to be legalistic god cares even in when we talk about divorce does god care more about keeping a marriage together than he does about the pain and the real problems of the people in the marriage which one would god care more about i care more about marriage but you can suck it up and suffer and hurt your kids or okay, go ahead and separate and continue to work on this and see how you can fix this. So that I'm going to tell you the damage that is done from the opposite is not anything that brings out the fruits of the spirit. They all, it all brings out the fruit of the flesh. So when you look at all of scripture and you put all of scripture together, then you can say, do I need to apply that legalistically? Or can I find, can I look at scripture and find out the principles behind scripture and what God would support? And I don't think you can make a case and when you look at it that way, for not being willing to separate and work on the things that you need to do. And sometimes in some of my situations, separation is permanent. Um, the, the people are willing to stay yeah. married because they don't feel they can divorce. But the situation is such that it's it's not possible. If someone is so sensitive, yeah. someone walking on the floor um, yeah. Yeah. or someone walking above them and you, you can't mitigate all of those factors, but you can try to create a weekend situation or separate places yeah. situation or, you know, cause safety and trust are two really important factors. Um, but sometimes people get forced into things through either condemnation of the church community, misunderstanding. It doesn't fit the traditional model. Then there's yeah. false guilt. And then, like you said, it doesn't bring the fruits of the spirit is the fruits of the flesh. And so I'll say to my couples, if you're you know, if you're yelling and screaming and escalating each other, is that a marriage that glorifies God or can you um, treat each other be better in different spaces? Exactly. Sometimes. And and again, back to, first, I think it's first Corinthians seven, where it talks about if you can't literally says, if you can't live together, then separate, but stay separated, stay. And, and it, you know, doesn't even refer, you know, just says, don't go off and marry somebody else. So they're literally following scripture. And then in the end, I mean, I hate to say this, but this is the honest truth. I mean, sometimes you have to do what you know before the Lord is right for you and your family, even if other people don't give you their blessing. And that's part, I'm sure, of facing your fears, because sometimes yes. standing up or, or feeling like you're going against, quote, the church community or mm -hmm. spiritual leadership that's well-intentioned maybe, but not um, educated on all of these things. That's part of those fears. Well, you have been a great guest. Um, I, so I definitely want to encourage people to get your book and your resources. So tell people how to find your podcast, um, your materials, how to find you if they're interested, 
tell us how to find you online. Thank you. Um, it changed my relationship is my website. And in that you will find um, all of my books. The one that we really talked about today was the 10 life saving principles for women in difficult marriages. I do have a new book that is a changed my relationship, 365 daily devotions for Christians in difficult relationships. And it literally has an index in the back of like 20 pages where it has each topic that you need to look up of what you're struggling with. And you can find the devotion for that day that is filled with tips, truths, wisdom to help you apply these principles in a discerning, very specific way in your relationship. Um, other books that I'm my podcast link, my YouTube videos, my Facebook um, page, all of those things are on there as well as the opportunity to sign up for my free devotion. And you will also then get notices of my courses, my classes that I teach. The Also on my website are all my classes I teach are available as downloadable resources if you want to do them on, their own, on your own. But courtesy of COVID, I am now also doing all my classes on Zoom. So those are also listed on there. And I also allow people to write me uh, and ask me questions and I answer detailed. That's a lot. That's a lot. Thank you for being a guest on our show today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this interview on Change My Relationship. We hope you will subscribe to these podcasts and share them with your friends. Carla would love to hear from you. She welcomes ideas for future podcasts as well as your feedback on how the podcast have helped your life and relationships. You can email her at Carla at changemyrelationship.com. For more information on Change My Relationship and Carla Downing's ministry, including her books, studies, devotionals, podcast, and YouTube videos, visit changemyrelationship.com.